Hi, this is Rosie Tillis and Rachel Hine, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery Review. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service exam. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in the respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Today we'll be discussing genital reconstruction. Um, we have Dr. Rizak with us here. She is a Duke microsurgeon. Um, she's been in practice for 10 years and she specializes in breast reconstruction, um, genital reconstruction, as well as transgender surgery. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for inviting me. We will begin with anatomy, classification of defects, and then followed by reconstruction techniques. Our resources come from the Janus book and most recent CME article by Diza et al. So there are several areas we need to define in terms of anatomy. The perineum, which is often discussed in reconstruction, consists of the area between the vagina and the anus in women and the area between the scrotum and the anus in men. This may also be described as the pelvic outlet, which is the area between the pubic symphysis and the coccyx. It is important to know that there are two fascial layers. So Rachel, do you want to talk about the two fascial layers? Yeah, I, the, for the two in the perineum are the superficial and the deep fascial layers. Um, the deep fascial layer is continuous with the colles fascia of the thigh. Yep. <laughs> the penis, which is located within the perineum, includes the root, body, and epithelium, which is the glans penis. Layers include the, the skin, the dartos fascia, buck's fascia, and the tunica albigenia, which surrounds the erectile tissue. Remember the neurovascular bundle, which includes the deep dorsal vein, dorsal artery, and paired uh, dorsal nerves of the penis. This is important for penile reconstruction and replantation. And then finally, the erectile tissue consists of paired corpora cavernosa and corpora spongi spongiosum, and the urethra passes through the corpus spongiosum and the meatus and ends at the tip of the glans penis. The vulva includes the mons pubis, labia majora, menorah, clitoris, and vestibule. The labia majora has similar layers of skin, including campus fascia, collis fascia, which is a continuation of scarpus fascia. The labia majora has an inferior attachment on the ischiopubic ramus that prevents the spread of hematomas and infections. The labia menorah consists of folds of skin without fat, and these meet together to form the precipice of the clitoris. The clitoris is derived from the undifferentiated phallus and has paired corpora, vestibular bulbs, and glands. The vagina is the muscular tubular structure that extends from the vulva to the uterus, and its op opening is located posterior to the urethra. The dimensions of an average vagina are 6 centimeters on the anterior wall, 7.5 centimeters on the posterior wall, with a width of about 2.6 to 3.25 centimeters. So let's talk about the arterial supply of the perineum. And when we talk about the size, this isn't to make people feel good or bad about themselves. This is, this is important for reconstruction. So when you're planning on reconstruction of defects, you need to remember that anteriorly, you're going to have about six centimeters um, need for reconstruction. And then there's a, it's a little bit longer posterior, which is about 7.5 centimeters. Well, that makes sense because most of the, when we do the vaginal reconstruction, our measurements usually come out to about, we want 10 centimeters by three centimeters. So, and that basically, I guess, allows for, you know, constriction and shrinkage. So when we're talking about the uh, vascular supply of the perineum, the internal pudendal artery, which is a branch of the internal iliac artery, supplies the perineum and vulva. The internal pudendal artery branches into the perineal artery, which contributes to scrotal and vulvar blood supply. For males, the common penile artery is also a branch of the internal pudendal artery and has three branches, the bulbo-urethral, the dorsal, and the deep cavernosa. 
Remember, the common penile artery travels below Buck's fascia and above the tunica albiginea, and that envelops the corpus cavernosum. Remember that the superficial and deep external pudendal artery, which are branches of the femoral artery, supply this area. This supplies the skin of the lower abdomen and anastomoses with the internal pudendal artery to supply the genitalia. The vagina is supplied by the uterine artery. Innervation for the perineum and genitalia follows along two different nerves, the pudendal and the ilioinguinal. So when talking about each of these, the pudendal nerve follows the course of the internal pudendal artery and it innervates the external genitalia and perineum. It branches into the perineal nerve, dorsal nerve of the penis or clitoris, the posterior scrotal and labial nerves, and the inferior anal nerves. The ilioinguinal nerve may be tested and its innervation includes the root of the penis or the mons, the upper part of the scrotum, and the labia majora. This is via the anterior scrotal or labial nerve. So now that we have reviewed our anatomy, let's talk about reconstruction. There are several mechanisms for perineal defects, including both acquired and congenital. For the purpose of our test, we mainly focus on acquired defects, including cancer or trauma. So what are some of the things we should consider for perineal reconstruction? Well, um, if you're looking at patients, right, so most of the perineal reconstruction we see usually comes from uh, cancer surgeries. Some of them does come from trauma. Uh, you get from necrotizing fasciitis or, or similar situations. Uh, so you have to know, you know, one, the size of the defect. Two, are you looking for a functional uh, perineal reconstruction or is it just for coverage? Um, three, you have to know the patient's comorbidities and age, and, and those also play into uh, what types of uh, reconstruction you're going to do. It's also important to remember that these reconstruction efforts have high complication rates, um, including high infection and high dehiscence rates. Um, it can be up to two-thirds of patients that suffer these kinds of complications. When you consider your reconstruction, you need to remember that this area has high bacterial counts, um, that you want to avoid stool and urine contamination or pressure necrosis from lying prone or sitting. Um, it's also important to note uh, patients' premorbid conditions, including prior chemoradiation or poor nutritional status. Um, Dr. Rizak, when we talk about the goals of reconstruction, can you kind of um, talk about what our typical go goals are for these patients? Yeah, so um, so for, say, for females, um, you have to de decide on our what, couple things. What What's the type of the defect? So is it complete, say, the entire vaginal wall is going to be gone? Is it just the anterior, posterior wall, uh, the labia, majora, minora? clitoral reconstruction. So we need to know what's missing in order to reconstruct it. And so second, are, are they going to be functional after the surgery or are we just going to completely just cover everything off and they're going to take off the, all the internal organs? Uh, so we really need to decide, you know, ahead of time, is it going to be trying to be a functional uh, vagina or is it not going to be? Um, and that's something we talk with the patient as well as the other surgeons, such as the cancer surgeon, the oncologic surgeon, who's going to be uh, taking everything out uh, or you know, just removing the part of the cancer. Um, it is a little bit more complicated to try to, you know, to perform a functional reconstruction, uh, it, more involved, and has a higher complication rate. So those are things that we have to take into account uh, for, you know, rectal, uh, rectal area, uh, if you're re reconstructing, so like the anal verge or something like that, you want to talk with the colorectal surgeon and um, preferably have a diversion ahead of time with an ileostomy or lupostomy, right? So uh, to try to decrease that complication, right? So those are things that you can do to avoid some of the complications after the surgery. So usually the goal is a return to function, whether that's sexual function or just function um, as a ways of daily living. 
And in terms of sexual function, up to 50% of patients are able to return. So let's talk about the different methods of vaginal reconstruction. Um, Cordero has a classic description of these methods. Yeah, so when we talk about defects, uh, they're typically described as class one or class two. Um, class one um, is typically descriptive of a partial defect, and that's further subdivided if it's anterior lateral or posterior. So if it's anterior lateral portion of the vagina that um, that is the defect, we call that a type 1A. Posterior def- defects are classified as 1B. And then any total or two-thirds of total circumferential defect is a type 2 defect. Um, If we had a type 1A defect or a partial defect, including the anterior lateral wall, um, Rosie, which flap would we consider best best use? So best use would be the Singapore flap, which is typically based on the posterior labial arteries or branches of the pudendal artery. It's a sensate flap, and it's uh, innervated via the posterior labial branches of the pudendal nerve, and it's the only flap that is actually immediately sensate for vaginal reconstruction. It's typically elevated in the fascia cutaneous plane of the deep fascia of the thigh directly over the adductor muscles, and it's transposed 70 degrees to put it in the correct position. The donor side is usually able to be primarily closed, and there are several variations of the Singapore flap, including the lotus flap. Um, These lotus flaps and the Singapore flaps can be used in a unilateral or bilateral fashion, depending on your defect. Yeah, that's perfect. So when we're talking about anterior, so partial defects, one to two-thirds, anterior lateral, it's going to be the Singapore flap. Um, Thank you for your description of that. If we had a posterior vaginal defect, what would be the best use in this scenario? So for 1B or posterior vaginal defects, VRAMs are usually used for reconstruction. That's right. So 1B defects typically occur after colorectal cancer, um, and they extend into the vaginal septum and can include the vaginal wall or pelvic contents. Um, Use of the VRAM is what's been typically described, and this brings healthy tissue into the area without previous radiation. Um, This is a Matheson high type 3 flap with the main blood supply being based off the deep inferior epigastric artery for vaginal reconstruction, although superior and inferior epigastrics uh, both provide blood supply to this muscle. The skin paddle is typically designed in a paramedian fashion with primary closure of the abdomen and can be up to 15 centimeters in width. So also um, with the VRAMs, you can, uh, what we tend to do is an extended VRAM, so taking it up superior laterally to, to get more skin as well, So uh, especially if you need a larger flap. So those are great flaps to have. And also there are some uh, descriptions of using a tram flap or a deep flap to reconstruct mm-hmm. some of the parallel reconstruction. Um, again, you know, the workhorse is the VRAM, so I would focus first on the VRAM, but there are alternatives as well. So just in kind of review, when we have a partial defect that's one-third or two-thirds, anterior lateral, you're going to use the Singapore flap, which is immediately sensate. Um, if it's a posterior defect, we're, it, that's a 1B, and we're going to be using a VRAM for that. So the last category would be for total or circumferential or two-thirds of the vaginal wall defects, and these can be reconstructed with a rolled VRAM. You can see these cases in gynecologic malignancies like cervical cancer. So are there any other flaps that we generally use for 2B or total vaginal defects? So say you had a patient who had a ostomy, ileostomy or colostomy and iliconduit on one side and on the other side, and so you couldn't use the abdomen. So then what, what are you going to use in that case? I think one of the options include the bilateral myocutaneous gracilis flaps. That's a good answer. That's a good flap to do. So the bilateral gracilis flaps are good for the total or subtotal vaginal defects. Um, these are seen after pelvic exents. 
And so remember, this is a type 2 muscle with the main blood supply coming from the medial femoral circumflex off of the profunda and the secondary minor pentacles from the SFA. So, Rachel, do you want to talk a little bit about how do we harvest the gracilis? Yeah, so when you identify the gracilis, you want to draw a line from the pubic tubercle to the semitendinous tendon. Um, This denotes the anterior border of the gracilis. The pedicle will typically enter 7 to 10 centimeters below the pubic tubercle between the adductor longus and magnus muscles. Yep, and so we design our flap over the adductors to include all of the perforators. It can be quite a large flap of up to 6 to 20 centimeters, which makes it great for these total defects. There, it's a great workhorse flap. Um, the, one of the complications of this flap, though, is skin necrosis because of the unfortunately the skin paddle mm-hmm. doesn't always uh, is not as reliable sitting over the muscle. Uh, some of the designs have been uh, instead of using it more of a uh, longitudinal is to try to use it more of a, a diagonal or transverse to decrease that skin necrosis. So there are, there are some variations to the gracilis. When you ha- use a large gracilis, do you use any kind of intraoperative evaluation measures like spy I do. and geography? Yeah, so particularly with the gracilis, I will use the spy imaging, especially for perineal reconstruction. I also use it for the VRAMs as well, too, and it really does decrease that complication rate after the surgery. Thanks. So that was a great review about vaginal reconstruction. We'll move on to vulva reconstruction. This is not seen as frequently as vaginal reconstruction um, typically results, or vulva reconstruction typically results from squamous cell cancer or other skin cancers, lichen sclerosis or HPV. Um, what are the different areas of the vulva, Rosie, that we are dis- that we typically discuss for reconstruction? So the vulva is typically divided into thirds, with the upper third including the mons and the labia. The middle third includes the labia proper, and the lower third includes the vaginal orifice and perineum. So we can talk about the different um, closure methods we use for the defects. So for the upper third defect, what would we use? So if the defect is small, you can sometimes use primary clo- primary closure. Um, larger defects are typically reconstructed with a pedicled ALT flap. Mm-hmm. So the ALT, in terms of its dissection um, and the type of flap, it's a fascia cutaneous flap. It's usually marked from the ASIS to the patella. And perforators are from the descending branch of the lateral circumflex artery. They're found at usually the midpoint of this line and then five centimeters superior and inferior to the midpoint. Those are the A, B, and C perforators. These pierce the flap between the vastus lateralis and medialis. In these cases, what would we do if our pedicle length is too short? So typically the flap is transferred in the subcutaneous plane. If you need more pedicle length um, from your one of your A, B, or C perforators, you can tunnel it under the rectus, femoris, and sartorius muscles. Um, if you need more bulk, you can include the vastus in the flap if you have a little bit of dead space. So for middle third defects, remember this is the labia proper, we might use the Singapore flap, the gracilis, or a gluteal fold flap. Typically, though, the gracilis is the most common for middle third defects and is really good for post-radiation defects. The lotus flap here, which is a plan based on the Singapore flap, has also been described. So also, um, because of the, the area involved, uh, we've been using uh, pap flaps as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's a thinner donor site, Uh, And it's right there as well. Uh, So those are some of the newer reconstructions that are using for the labia. Do you use a lot of pedicled ALTs for vulvar reconstruction? Um, More. I've been, that was the workhorse was the Mm -hmm. the ALT. um, But now um, using more medial reconstruction is Mm -hmm. a little bit easier. You don't have to worry about the reach. Mm -hmm. uh, And I can get a thinner uh, paddle usually. Um, I can design it uh, with a smaller paddle. And those are for your upper third defects? Yeah, the upper and also for the middle third, you can use those too. 
Um, for the middle third, we talked about using the Singapore flap. And so you have to remember, like we talked about before, the perforators come from the superficial perineal artery and the innervation from the superficial perineal nerve rather than the labial arteries. And it's designed in the shape of a lotus if, if we are doing the lotus variation. Let's talk about lower third reconstruction. So for lower third or vaginal orifice reconstruction, we may use a gluteal fold flap. And this is based on the internal pudendal artery perforators and might include the posterior cutaneous nerve of the thigh, although this flap is not normally sensate. It's a fascia cutaneous flap and dissection occurs within the triangle of the ischial tuberosity, anus, and vaginal orifice or scrotum. I've also seen pedicled ALTs used for this mm -hmm. posterior reconstruction. The pedicled ALT is a great workhorse. It can reach basically anywhere in the perineum, and so that's one of the benefits of this flap. You can use the you can use the rectus as well. Uh, however, if they if the abdomen in a lot of these cases the abdomen is not violated, mm -hmm. we try to avoid doing any other incisions on the abdomen. So overall, for vulvar reconstruction, I think the pedicled ALT is like Dr. Rezac said, a great workhorse for upper upper middle and uh, lower third defects. For middle defects, you can use the Singapore flap, and then for the lower third defect, you can use a gluteal fold flap. Agreed. And some of these, even just local cutaneous, uh, fascia cutaneous flaps can be used mm -hmm. for vulvar reconstruction. And a lot of times we can actually do additional fat grafting as well on top of that if they need volume. Uh, so there are a couple things we can do to try to avoid doing a big flap if they don't have to. Thanks. Next, we'll move on to penile reconstruction. Um, when we talk about treatment of penile defects, it's usually a free flap that we're talking about. Um, Ones that we use commonly are also used in transgender surgery and can be the radial forearm free flap, the free sensate osteocutaneous fibular flap, and then uh, other options like the scapular flap, latissimus, VRAM, deep, gracilis, um, or an ulnarly based forearm flap. So I think it's important in these patients, like Dr. Rizek had mentioned, to talk about their goals because some people don't necessarily need an entire reconstruction. I had a mm -hmm. patient whose goal primarily was to stand and pee. Mm -hmm. And so we elected to forego the more invasive surgery because he was able to do that after his initial surgery. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Different etiologies for uh, penile defects needing reconstruction. Um, it can be after lichen sclerosis, um, any kind of carcinoma of the penis, neuroendocrine tumors. And when you classify these, you want to classify it as partial or complete, and that will help you um, identify your needs for reconstruction. So in terms of the different flaps, the radial forearm free flap is currently the gold standard for total penile phalloplasty and for gender reaffirming surgery. It has an innervated skin island based on the antibrachial cutaneous nerve. This can be co-opted to the pudendal nerves or the dorsal nerve of the penis. And the forearm skin is used for the neo-urethra neo from a central urethral strip. It's tubed usually over a 12 to 14 French silicone urinary catheter. And if you remember correctly, one of the most common complications was stricture. How long will you leave these catheters in? Um, it varies. I mean, some can leave up for two to four weeks, depending on how the healing time is. Yeah. And then there's two other flaps we'll talk about, which is the free sensate osteocutaneous fibular flap. The main advantage to the fibula over the radial forearm is avoidance of a prosthesis, although some patients actually do require a prosthesis, um, which we talked about in our previous podcast uh, for gender reaffirming surgery. It does have a less conspicuous donor site than the radial forearm, and it does have an innervated skin island via the peroneal nerve, but it will need a full thickness skin graft for the neourethral, and that is more likely to have urethral constriction than your other flaps. So the last option is a pedicled ALT, which is a tube in a tube technique. This preserves the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve, 
and it can be constructed while the flap is still in the thigh. It's tunneled up, but it's also tubed over the uh, a catheter too, mm-hmm. as well. Um, they can do them staged uh, uh, with the doing the urethra. It can mm-hmm. be done staged in this case as well too. Um, the complication rate has uh, been shown that it's pretty higher if it's single stage versus staged. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing just to note for the prosthetics, they are devising new prosthetics particularly for this patient population that are softer to try to avoid the erosion that they're getting um, and they're coming out on the market soon. So that's something to look forward to. Nice. Mm-hmm. Do you put those in at the time of initial surgery or do you come No, back? they're always delayed. Finally, we'll talk about scrotal reconstruction. Um, if you do not have prior radiation therapy, you can use a skin graft. Um, although a lot of these patients will present to us uh, with more complex reconstructive needs. So different flap options that we'll mention include the superior medial thigh flaps with a pouch, a pedicled ALT, which we've talked about a lot, um, the gracilis flap, or you can even use tissue expansion, although that would be difficult in a radiated area. So now we'll talk about kind of clinical examples that might require reconstruction. So we can have a traumatic amputation of the penis, and in that case you would initially attempt microvascular replantation if you can. Um, in terms of keeping the organ safe while it's not replanted yet, you keep it on saline-soaked gauze in a sterile bag and you place it on slush. You definitely want to have the patient diverted, so urinary diversion in a suprapubic catheter, and then you would complete your urethral anastomosis over the Foley. You would complete your corporal body coaptation by approximating the tunica albiginia, and then perform your microsurgical anastomosis of the dorsal vessels, the nerves, and the skin closure. So we'll do a a question now. This is from one of our previous year's tests. A 34-year-old man with schizophrenia is examined one hour after amputating his penis at the base of the shaft with a cleaver. The penis has been retrieved and a decision is made to attempt microvascular replantation, repair of which of the falling arteries is paramount to a successful outcome. Bulbal urethral, deep cavernosal, dorsal penile, the helicene, or the internal pudendal artery. So the dorsal penile artery is the most important when replanting the penis. It has the best outcomes for sexual urinary sensation. That's right. So this is a typical question that we get asked. Um, You're going to perform your anastomosis of the dorsal penile artery. That's assuming that the patient wants it reattached. That's right. You always have to ask preferences. (laughs) (laughs) And then we'll touch briefly on um, gender-affirming surgeries. We have a separate podcast dedicated to that. Um, But if we go over the WPATH guidelines again really quickly. So in terms of the guideline of coverage for gender-affirming surgery, for chest and breast surgeries, They need one referral from a mental health provider documenting gender dysphoria. They need to have informed consent capacity, as always. The age of consent is 18, but like Dr. Rezak mentioned in our previous podcast, it actually is based on a consensus of surgeons and the insurance companies and and can be lowered if this is deemed beneficial for the patient. Hormone therapy is not required to be started prior to chest or breast surgery. Um, and neither is living in congruence with your gender identity. And then for genital reconstruction, you need two referrals, uh, documented referrals of gender dysphoria from your mental from mental health providers. You do need the capacity of informed consent, just like any other surgery. Um, it, age of consent is 18 or older. Hormone therapy is required for 12 months continuously, and the patient must be living in congruence with gender identity for at least 12 months. And for facial or other gender affirmation surgeries, mental health provider documentation is not required. 
you obviously have to have informed consent capacity. Age of consent is generally 18 or guardian consent if there is an appropriate guardian available. Hormone therapy and living in congruence with your gender identity are not required for facial or other gender affirmation surgeries. So that wraps up our vaginal reconstruction talk. Um, I'd like to thank Dr. Rizak for being here, moderating and giving her input um, and expertise. So thank you for that. Thank you for inviting me. And I would like to invite you guys to check out our transgender gender reaffirming podcast, which goes into a little bit more detail about uh, male to female and female to male reconstruction options. Thanks.